Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we are thrilled to announce that our ecosystem is growing and are delighted to count domain therapeutics, GPCR therapeutics, design pharmaceuticals, and Montana Molecular as our ecosystem partners. Become an ecosystem member yourself and join our partners and your colleagues today. The ecosystem is your GPCR-focused virtual playground. Join over 400 of your peers who have already started exploring, connecting, and collaborating better. You can explore the ecosystem by signing up and getting a free site membership. For the next couple of weeks, once you sign up for your free account, you can watch the talks from the third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit for free. When ready, you can also get a paid membership to unlock the ecosystem's full benefits. If you'd like to register your team or company, or if you live in a developing country, please reach out to us by email or on the ecosystem, and we'll be happy to help you join us. The list of benefits of the ecosystem is quite long, but today we want to highlight that you can get direct access to our ecosystem partners, ask questions, and who knows, find your next job on, in the ecosystem. Our job board is a GPCR-focused one where you can explore different opportunities, and if you are looking to hire, you can submit your job description. Take advantage of everything that the new GPCR dedicated online playground has to offer today. Explore the possibilities by navigating the site using the direct links in the footer. Check it out today at ecosystem.drgpcr.com. And now let's dive into this episode. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Brian Trichet. Hi, Brian. Nice to meet you. And nice to have Hi, you Yamina. on. Yeah, nice to be on. It's, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. And you're in sunny California. It, it is sunny today, although yesterday it was pouring. We were thrilled. Yeah, it's, it's pouring. Uh, it came over to, to the East Coast today. Yeah, well... <laughs> You you guys get enough rain, but whenever it rains here in September, we're very excited because it means we're unlikely to get burned down. That's yeah, and it's unfortunate, but I'm glad that it was raining yesterday. So we'll, we're going to send you more rain. Thank as, you as, as soon as possible. All right, so let's let's jump right into it. Can you please tell us who you are and what do you do? Uh, okay, I'm uh, Brian Schuchert. I'm a professor of um, pharmaceutical chemistry here at uh, UCSF, and our lab is interested in structure-based ligand discovery. Big focus is G-protein-coupled receptors. Hence and, your presence at the, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. So I think that's a short summary. We're sort of a technology-driven lab. Mm -hmm. um, we're not, um, we have sort of Catholic interests in terms of what the target is, what the receptor is, and um, we're, we're driven by what our what we think our technologies can can help us, where we can find ligands using structure-based techniques. Fantastic. Before UCSF, where did you complete your undergrad and your PhD? Yeah, I got uh, an undergraduate degree in chemistry from MIT. And uh, and then I went to UCSF where I got a PhD in pharmaceutical chemistry. And uh, although they sound pretty similar, it was a big change for me. 
Interesting. You mentioned, you know, we were talking before we hit record, I mentioned the orange line of the T. I live in Boston. And then you said, oh, I said Metro and you said the T, but now I know why, you know, it's called the T. Um, and you also mentioned that you're also Canadian, just as I am. How did you come from Canada? How did you end up at MIT? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, looking back on it, it was sort of a frivolous decision, but, uh, I, somebody, I was telling somebody my interests when I was like 15 or 16 and they said, oh, you should go to MIT. And I thought, oh, <laughs> maybe I should go to MIT, <laughs> uh, you know, and then back then, you know, this was, I, I was class of 85 and we didn't. I don't think people knew as much. Certainly, I didn't know as much about universities back then. And you know, a couple of people said, "Oh, yeah, MIT, that would be a good place for you." And I thought, "Oh, okay, I'll try, I'll try there." So that's where I went. You mentioned, um, you know, at fifteen, somebody suggesting to you to go to MIT. What were your interests as a teenager? Was it chemistry oh, so all the way? Yeah, it was. I'm embarrassed to say I got interested. We, you know, it's the usual story. I had a fabulous chemistry teacher. And uh, he, he was just really excited. I think the whole class in chem, like a, there were a bunch of chem. My sister also is a chemist, also had the same teacher. And uh, and so I got just really excited and, and really in organic chemistry. And uh, that carried me. And I stuck as a chemist uh, at MIT. And I, I, I was pretty confident I was going to be, you know, a hardcore synthetic organic chemist you know i had this romance of making molecules you know with your hand and you know they could change you could sort of program a whole organism with these little molecules i thought that was amazing and and this and this real sort of it, it, it was sort of i think the that time was one of the last real glorious flowerings of synthetic organic chemistry and uh, so it was a very exciting time and uh and and there was this real um you know romance about being like just a hardcore synthetic chemist and solving these you know they talked about it as this goes to uh, EJ Corey school of thought about the, like treating synthesis as a chess problem and working there you know, so retro synthetic analysis working back from the molecule you wanted to make to the starting materials and and like the more steps that the reaction had the more glorious it was and that's so i was right through the middle of my junior year i i thought i was going to be you know just a hardcore chess playing synthetic organic chemist and uh yeah what changed, changed. What, yeah. what changed your trajectory <laughs> that's the next logical well, question well i i took a course a graduate course in synthetic organic chemistry taught by uh rick danheiser who's still there um and he was he was a quarry graduate actually and uh really knew the history of synthetic organic he was a really interesting guy and a re you know very hardcore guy and um and he he began the course um, by saying, you know, I know all you guys think you're going to be hotshot synthetic organic chemists because actually most of the class were graduate students who come to MIT uh, for, you know, organic chemistry. And um, 
but I want you to look to your left, so we all look to our left, and look to your right, so we all look to our right, and realize that one of you three is not going to make it as a synthetic organic chemist. And this is the class that's probably going to decide that. And uh, and by the end of that class, I knew that I was among those one of those three. I was I was one of the three who wasn't going to make it uh, uh, as a synthetic organic chemist. I mean, I did fine in the class. Uh, uh, I passed and everything, but um, I, there were people there who, up until that point, I'd been, I'd had this intuition about, you know, synthesis, and, and you know, maybe I, I still did, but but there were, but it came clear that there were people in that class who knew it, whose intuition was so much better than mine, and whose fundamental underlying knowledge was so much better than mine, maybe because they'd studied a lot more. Um, that I was never gonna, I was never gonna be at that level, and that that was one of those. I had an exist. I had my first existential crisis. Uh, I was gonna ask, how did you handle that? Because that's that's an that's an important point in your life where you realize that you're not gonna make it to the into the career that you were dreaming about. Yeah. Um, well, it was it was pretty disturbing, actually, uh, and it really set me back. And I think, in retrospect, I've come to believe, like, never let an existential crisis go to waste. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> it's, it's a great opportunity, but you know, at twenty, uh, it's a it, it's a bit disruptive, and um, uh. So I was adrift for a while, but at the same time, I was starting to, you know, one of the things that had got me excited about chemistry was this idea that, I, you know, that was the end product. Like you could get these molecules and they would do something cool, not just the process of getting them, although for a while that had been the an end in itself. And and so I sort of re got reacquainted with that idea, which, you know, I, I realized, oh, oh, that's pharmacology or at least some aspect of it mm. and uh, there was a guy mike marletta who was at mit who had this uh, famous pharmacology course and i thought oh i'll 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 take that course and and uh see if i can rescue myself from the the pit i've seemed to have fallen into and um well it turned out mike was he was on taking a sabbatical that year he was coming up for tenure and uh, he he's gone on to a brilliant career not at mit uh but actually he's now at berkeley but anyways um, he wasn't teaching that course, someone else was, but it was still a super interesting course. And I thought, oh, and and chemistry really played into it, obviously. You know, a lot of, especially at that time, pharmacology was all small molecules. And uh, and I got, uh, so I thought, oh, well, maybe I could be a pharmacologist or or a medicinal. What I discovered there was this thing called medicinal chemistry. So I, I started to get excited about that. And, um, and Greg Petsko, at the time was also at MIT. He's a very famous structural biologist. Also, he's he's really one of the most charismatic speakers you'll ever hear. Uh, and um, he said, well, Brian, given your interest, you got to go to UCSF. And um, I didn't at first, actually, I, I went I, I went to UNC because they had a very famous pharmacology course. But I couldn't tell, I actually was confused about the difference between pharmacology and medicinal chemistry. So I actually entered medicinal chemistry and um, it wasn't actually, at the, UNC is a brilliant, has a great medicinal chemistry school now, 
and they've always had a fabulous pharmacology uh, program. But at the time, uh, the med the medchem program was a bit peculiar, and so I went back to to Petsco. I <laughs> crawled my way back to to Boston, and uh, I I begged Greg to give me five minutes of his time, so he did, and uh, and I uh, I told him my my tale of woe, and he said, okay, okay. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to call up the chairman, and. Uh, he picks up the phone and he, after a few, he starts talking to George, whoever George is. George Kenyon turns out to be the chairman of medicinal chemistry at UCSF. And he has a, a, what appears to be a long conversation. How's Lucy? How's the kids? How's the, the dogs? You know, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. Well, I've got this great kid I'm going to send out to you. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, and then he says, okay, so I want you to call them up and I want you to apply today. So I filled with enthusiasm. I did just that, and I eventually got in. And 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 I was, I talked. I you know. I, so after I met George Kenyon, was a very engaging guy. And everybody at UCSF, this was a shock to me. You know, I came. You know, for me, it was never. A, hey, Greg, how are you doing? It was you know, Professor Petsko and everything. And um, and when I got to UCSF, everybody was on a first name basis. And that was very different from what I'd experienced on the East Coast and Toronto. And uh, and anyway, so one day I, I said, oh, George, I just want to thank you for, you know, taking Greg's call and encouraging me to apply. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, you know, remember, you probably don't remember, but Greg Petzo called you up and talked about me and blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, I don't think that call ever happened. <laughs> and so and, and so I went back and forth with him. And I, what I came to believe is that Greg had been talking into a dial tone for 10 minutes and uh, and Kenyon was never there. And he was just doing it to give me the courage to pull myself out of the depression I'd been in ever since I realized I was never going to be a synthetic organic chemist and, you know, get myself to this, what at the time was a very cutting edge program. Wow. <laughs> That's how I ended up. Myself. What a story. What a phenomenal story. I can relate to, to, you know, the casual, I think, in Canada, in Montreal, and I think especially in the Francophone culture, but I think in the Canadian culture, we're very respectful and it's professor and doctor. And I'm still struggling with first name basis with even my podcast guests. And typically my first email is Dr. XYZ. Yeah, yeah. And then when they respond, I switch. But um, yeah, what a phenomenal story. Yeah, yeah. Well, coming to California... You know, I felt like a just a weight lifted off of me, just like as I was flying into the, you know, I flew into the city. It was at night, you know, some just like <laughs> realizing that, you know, you, you remember traumas, but sometimes you also remember ecstatic moments. And I flew in to California, to San Francisco at night and the whole city, you know how American, North American cities are. It's they're different from European cities. They're just like this crazy quilt, glittering diamond. Yeah. The middle of the the water and it was uh it was stunning and and then and it was like landing in a different planet and ucsf at the time i think was a very unusual place because you know the molecular biology revolution was really getting going and it was getting going in a few other places too but this was certainly one of the epicenters and then everybody had all and ucsf funny place right like if you look up the history of ucsf they'll tell you 
I'm talking about a bunch of things that are not about GPCRs, but anyway. It's okay, uh, but this is amazing. Go ahead. I'm not going to stop so, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, so UCSF, you know, if you look up when UCSF was founded, blah, 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 you'll say it's founded like 160 years ago or something stupid, but that's complete nonsense. It was really founded in 1958 or 59. Uh, it had existed, the buildings had existed, but it was, it just been UC med school. It was like where Berkeley sent their med students for training because there was a hospital there, but it, it wasn't really a university. And then in 1958 or something like that, you know, maybe it was 57, the, uh, Berkeley, in, in a fit of absent-mindedness, decided that they didn't want to sully themselves with medical education anymore. So they took a hundred about faculty positions and said, hey, we're going to give this all to UCSF and, and you guys deal with it. And we just don't want to deal with it anymore. And so, but it was at a perfect time because, you know, the the Watson and Crick had been a few years earlier, the the molecular biology was starting to get rolling. And all of a sudden, this institution that didn't know its ass from a hot rock had a hundred um, faculty positions to hire into, and they lucked out. They lucked out and they got a couple of visionary people uh, from Harvard and Princeton, it turns out. And those guys um, said, well, we have a view of, of what we can be doing uh, in this field. And they got to, they hired a bunch of you know, 28-year-old kids at the time to be their new faculty members. And these guys were all you know, consumed with the idea of the, a molecular view of, in, you know, medicinal chemistry for me and or a structural view, like we should be, you know, the first crystal structures that started to come out and, and they were consumed overall with the, you know, molecular biology. And so, so UCSF got started in that so very heady time and everybody was very informal with each other because they were all, you know, hippies right <laughs> 28 year old hippies yes that's it. yeah <laughs> yeah and so it was so you by the time i got there you know 20 years later or something they they it was still a very informal giddy uh, giddy place still very giddy with the possibilities and uh so i just lucked out that's amazing that's uh, and i can you mentioned you know coming getting to the airport and seeing the the flickering lights i went for a an actually an interview for a postdoc position with paul incel which didn't work out because he didn't have the funding but he turned out to be my first guest on the podcast and i will never forget uh the plane ride to san diego and looking at, at the at the area it was just amazing so i i feel you yeah i think that's something we have to like how many of the people who come into our lives as scientists are basically, you know, immigrants from one place or another. Yeah. It, it, you know, some of them are really immigrants from, you know, within the U.S., but they're, they're immigrants of the mind. And, and just you have to, it's hard to remember, but it's so important that for them, everything, the world is reborn. Agreed. Agreed. Where do GPCRs come into the... The picture says you're you're twenty something. You just landed uh, in California, UCSF. You love it. Turns yeah. out there was a phone call that never happened, but uh, <laughs> yeah. so so at in Chapel Hill, you know, I I didn't stay there very long, but I stayed there long enough to take the hardcore pharmacology course, where you know 
Goodman and Gilman was the textbook. It was a brilliant course, and I learned about GPCRs there. They, I guess by then, this was like 86. They were already calling them GPCRs, but just starting to. Uh, you know, Lefko and Kabilka had just solved the, well, had just cloned. So I just cloned the beta, beta 2. Um, and so I, I learned about GPCRs, and especially as them being targets for drugs, you know, so many drugs targeted GPCRs. But then I got to UCSF, and it was a very protein structure oriented places. And there was just no, there was no hope of getting a GPCR structure at the time. So I fell away from them. Uh, and got interested in other things. And and I actually, I got, the more I got into biophysics, the sort of further away I got from GPCRs, you know, we started with uh, thymidylate synthase, which is a complicated enzyme important for cancer and working with Bob Stroud and Dan Santee and TAC, did my PhD with TAC Kunz. And um, that was brilliant. And then when I went, did my postdoc, I went even simpler. I went to, um, T4 lysis, phage lysis, I'm a very simple model system, but it was an exciting time. And, and I just sort of got more basic. And then I, I started my lab at, at uh, so nothing to do with GPCRs, right? I, the closest I'd gotten to GPCRs was a first year graduate student in Chapel Hill. And then I ran away. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> not from GPCRs? From, from no, not from GPCRs. <laughs> but the, yeah, I kept, people kept on saying, well, how about GPCRs? And I said, well, no structures. And so, and I, we, we were very structure based, you know, we would start with the structure of protein and, you know, discover design molecules based on that. So if there was no structures, we were in trouble. And, um, I went to, I went to Northwestern. I started my lab at the medical school at Northwestern, which was a fabulous experience. And there, you know, actually there were some GPCR people, um, like Heidi Ham was there. And she was very uh, influential, but still, you know, there were, there were no structures. And then finally I was, I was, um, then I came back to UCSF actually. So I started my lab at UCSF at Northwestern and I got tenure and I got recruited back. And then a few years into my time at use back at UCSF, um, I was running, uh, the, um, com computational chemistry Gordon conference. And I was the, I was, um, uh, the, I, vice chair which meant i or actually organized the meeting and um and i got a call one day from uh, somebody in industry and saying hey we just heard a rumor that brian kabilka has solved the structure of the beta receptor by by protein crystallography why don't you get him to speak at this meeting and, and the meeting was almost full um and but i thought wow it's all of a sudden, GPCRs had reemerged, and I thought, "Wow, this would be amazing!" And so I, I called up Brian. It's my first time I'd ever spoke to him, and and uh, he, yeah, he agreed to do it. And um, well, the funny thing was, my I, I didn't actually go to my own my own Gordon conference because um, at the same time the the meeting was happening, my my son was being born, and and I thought um, I thought I'd better be there for that event. Uh, I so I didn't so. go to the meeting. <laughs> I didn't Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to stay married. And uh, uh so um but afterwards I I I went, I called up Brian and said, Hey, could we get together and we I'd love to see what you've got and, and maybe we could collaborate. And he was he was he's always been super open to things like that and, and he was very welcoming and he took us through the structure. And I remember I had gone down there with 
um, my my close collaborator John Irwin and a postdoc in the lab Peter Kolb, and um, and the minute we saw that structure, we thought, okay, we're, this is going to we're going to drop everything and and work on on these new new GPCR structures because it was such a beautiful binding site for someone interested in small molecule binding to uh, to proteins. It was it was like was God's idea of a binding site. And so I should, there was actually a, so that was, that was a huge change. And, and really from within six months, we had completely shifted the focus of the lab, but I do have to, I should, I, you know, I forgot to mention there was another important thing that happened, which was a year before that, actually um, I was, I had visited um, um uh, I had visited Ohio uh, Cleveland Clinic, and um, and I met Brian Roth there, actually. And he said, "You know, we study these GPCRs, and you, there's some interesting stuff here for you." And I didn't, I, I sort of missed the message then. But like months later, we got interested in them again because of um, we we had this chemoinformatic method for you know my whole career has been start with a protein structure. And go to small molecules, but we had we had sort of gone back to classical pharmacology, you know, because classical pharmacology went the logic was the reverse: start with a small molecule and and figure out what the you know basically define a receptor. You know, they never had them cloned or, or anything uh, based on the small molecules, and we def we had developed a, a, um, a computational method to use that logic, but at doing that scale and. And I was looking for someone who could test some of our predictions because we had such and so weird molecule, uh, like for instance, emetine, right? We had predicted that emetine would hit some, some GPCRs because they naturally came out of the process. And I was trying to um, convince um, Mark von Zostro, who you, you probably know, yeah. and, and uh, to, to help us. And he said, well, I could help you, but the guy you really want to speak with is Brian Roth because he can basically test any GPCR. I said, oh, Brian Roth, I just met him. And so mm -hmm. I, I I got in touch with him and he was really um, surprised. That's actually, that's, you know, there was two things that got me excited about GPCR. Well, three things. One is super important for drug targets. Second thing was, you know, Brian Kabilka sort of opening my eyes to them. And then the third thing was like, everybody was really open to testing things, like to testing these ideas that came out of theory, to testing them experimentally. And that was a new experience for me because we were, we'd sort of been used to having people sort of <laughs> close the door. Like, we don't believe in this theory stuff, man. And, and, and the GPCR guys were hungry for molecules and, and they were really nice and, and supportive. And so like, be, Brian Roth and Brian Kabilka are still my, my two closest collaborators in, in this field to this day. And, and it's because they were so welcoming. How amazing is that? And you're right. I think that the people in the field are typically very kind, very nice, always willing to collaborate. And um, I, I grew up in the field and I, I'm in love, hence, hence the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great thing you're doing. And, and I guess, um, for people who grew up in the field, I can just say they don't know how lucky they are. <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. I don't think they're they're realizing how lucky they are. I've heard horrible things about other fields, 
where there are all these competitions and all these difficulties. I'm not going to say which field, but I think uh, let's focus on the positive. I think the GPCR field in general is just so amazing. I've, yeah, I can't say and you know good enough things or nice enough things because it's been just an amazing journey even before I started the podcast but now with the podcast and I got to talk to so many people around the world it's just everybody's so generous I totally agree yeah so you mentioned beta to adrenergic receptor and and structure is that your favorite GPCR or do you have a favorite GPCR at all yeah, you know, I thought about that because I knew you were going to ask. I heard you ask others about it. And um, and I try to think, what's my favorite GPCR? And I realized I don't have one. And it's sort of embarrassing. What I have are like favorite, most favorite and most hated <laughs> molecules that modulate GPCRs. I love it. So I You're the first one. We had Andrew Tobin with uh, a phosphorylation site. Other than that, we had people who have a family of receptors, a family of G proteins. I don't think we had beta restins yet, but this is amazing. So most loved and most hated molecules. I'm okay. all ears. <laughs> well, most hated, God's joke on evolution, catecholamines. Catecholamines are really dangerous molecules, man. And the fact that they are one of our primary signaling molecules is like God's joke because, you know, they're, they're really prone to oxidation and, you know, they cause havoc in, in neurons. You know, that's basically what's underlies you know, Parkinson's and probably a lot of other um, CNS diseases that the catecholamines super easy to oxidize, you know, they form free radicals and then all hell breaks loose. So catecholamines are the evil signaling molecules, God's joke. Um, I, I love, um, I, I love these signaling molecules that sort of integrate multiple pathways, like, um, like serotonin, you know, binds to, you know, the, the metabotropic serotonin receptor the gpcrs uh, a whole bunch of them i can't remember how many 16 or something but it also binds to an ion channel right the 5ht3 mm -hmm. uh, and um, prostaglandins same thing except it's doesn't it binds to gpcrs and um, nuclear hormone receptors and um, atp and the purinergics both bind to metabotropic ionotropic Bile acids, super interesting molecules, uh, bind to nuclear hormone receptors and um, GPCRs. Estrogen binds to GPR30 and, of course, the estrogen receptor. Yeah. And um, I think those molecules are super interesting because they, you know, these are molecules that are signaling through multiple pathways and multiple time domains. And, and you got to believe that there's something integrative about that, that no, that a really selective molecule couldn't replicate. And um, and you also get the feeling, like those are ancient molecules, right? The, the, the signaling molecules are ancient, haven't changed much over evolutionary time. Um, whereas the receptors have evolved. Like the small molecules don't evolve. It's Well, they do, but it's really hard for them to evolve because 
they're not a gene product, right? They're a product of metabolism. They're the product of products. And, um, and so, you know, we had this idea where that, um, that sort of the, the, the signaling molecules, the small molecules, it's the conceit of a, of an organic chemist, but the, the signaling molecules are the, the sort of unchanging hubs around which the receptors have evolved and, and through which they, you, the cell has these integrative multi-time domain responses. And, um, and then I like, there's, you know, some, like some GPCR ligands have had huge impacts on history, right? Like, so the, to some extent, the English revolution and for sure the French revolution, you know, can be traced back to these clubs, right? The, they were coffee clubs. Right, like the the you know everyone's heard of the Jacobin, the Girondin, right? But the the you know the Jacobin is the comes from the 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 club de Jacobin, which was a it was a coffee club, yeah. And uh, same with the Girondin, it was a coffee club, and so I sort of think as coffee as the sort of like the revolutionary GPCR drug, and uh, and then and then you think about you know origins of um, settled civilization and you wonder how much of that you know the the you know the traditional story is that it was you know domestication of grain and of um animals but you wonder if i mean were people really interested in baking bread or were they interested in fermenting grain because i'm guessing that fermenting grain probably had as much to do with nucleating settled civilization if you were a, a pastoralist wandering you know, I mean, I guess you could um, ferment goat's milk and stuff like that. And they, in fact, they did, but that came later. It was grain. It was ferment grapes, right? Yeah. Fermenting grapes. And uh, so that's not a GPCR ligand, but I think like drugs have this sort of important role in, in human civilization. And they've been sort of like at, at important articulating points, there's a drug. Yes, yes. And the most used one right now is coffee, definitely. Uh, first thing in the morning. Yeah, coffee. Yeah, yeah. So the joke is that chemistry is the product of the coffee plants on chemist minds. <laughs> well, and, and you know, the funny thing is I was listening to um, the Huberman Lab podcast and he was talking about caffeine. And apparently if you um, if you wait two hours after you wake up to drink the coffee, its effect is even um, more extended and it's it, it has a better effect uh, because then you you have the your body has the time to wake up and you're not displacing the ATP off of the adenosine receptors. So it's very oh, difficult. Yeah. I think it's very difficult to wait two hours after you wake up to drink your coffee. <laughs> Typically, that's the first thing that I go to, half asleep for coffee. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, any favorite or hated small molecules? Um, okay, well, you know, um, I went to college, so I like, uh, you know, the hallucinogens are uh, favorites of mine. Silosin, so, LSD. Uh, uh, those are very exciting molecules. Still, 
only partly understood. Yep. Um, I really loved uh, Brian um, Brian Ross' uh, short video on Twitter, uh, since they just solved the structure with the LSD. And I was looking right. at the video, and um, I'm not. So let me take a step back. I was never good at chemistry. I think it's beautiful, but somehow my brain just blocks it out. It just doesn't work. And watching that short video on, on Twitter, I had goosebumps. Like, oh my God, that little molecule sitting in there does wonders on the brain. Does wonders in the brain. And that's, you know, one of the things that got me interested in the field in the first place, this idea that you could put this little molecule in, not just LSD, and, and just really reprogram things. Yeah. The, you know, there's other, other, you know, you think about impacts on humanity, you know, you got to go back to the antibacterials and antivirals too. So penicillin, another miracle molecule, right? And it changed. This is the romantic thing, right? These molecules, you know, you think LSD, okay, well, <laughs> that that has profound but fairly local effects but uh i don't mean to diminish it <laughs> uh, no but, definitely uh, but then you think about penicillin changed the world so there's another molecule you know i think caffeine club de jacobin there's a straight line to the french revolution and seriously there is and but and then but then you think about penicillin before things like penicillin and the uh, sulfa antibacterials came about you know people died prematurely and it was a normal thing so back then you know premature death even though uh you know longevity was life expectancy was increasing still wasn't great and 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 people experience you know people just died from infections and then along came penicillin and you know the the first ones that came along were the 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 sulfa drugs and then but then penicillin and then a bunch of others and it changed the way we live profoundly and and um and people in like who you know growing up in the 30s you were very used to premature death people just died or they had horrible diseases that couldn't be treated and after the, the penicillins and so forth that that a lot of that went away and then and and people even more important bought into this idea that you know that we could overcome premature death and that and that we could you know invest in medical research and come up with you know with miracle drugs and they you know people's children people's children weren't dying at, at an early age mothers weren't dying uh, in in birth and and operations that no one could ever conceive of before all of a sudden became possible and there was this whole the whole expectation how people lived and their expectation changed and it changed really quickly it changed you know some between 1935 and 1950 it had changed and uh and i used to think you know though a lot of people went through that and they must have i mean don't how did they remember how they used to live and how they were living sort of pre and post penicillin if you will and um and how big a change that must have been for them and and now i think you know having come through the pandemic and really still being in it 
yeah. though nobody admits it. Uh, you know, people, <laughs> I've, what I've realized is people forget things in like days. Yes. We don't talk about yeah. it anymore, at least. Not that much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then you know this. People go through huge, profound changes, and and they accommodate themselves to it really quickly. But I think it's important to remember how these drugs have really changed humanity. And like humanity exists for you know two hundred thousand years, uh, you know, experiencing premature death, and then that's what like that's very common. And all of a sudden, it goes away in in fifteen years. Yeah, and, and during the, those those days, people were accepting it. It happened, and you had nothing to do, and that was it. it reminds me of, you know, you mentioned um, women dying during childbirth and and all of these things, and I cannot remember the person's name, but there was this whole theory that doctors um, had to wash their hands because in the morning yeah. they were delivering babies, and in the evening they were. Um, doing autopsies and they didn't wash their hands it's just the idea of using water and soap to to prevent infections it's just amazing yeah and now that with covid a, yeah i was just gonna say and now with covid you you walk into the restrooms and it says you have to wash your hands for 20 seconds and i wonder how many people actually do that for 20 seconds because i have a hard time you know scrubbing for those 20 seconds yeah that's the happy birthday, right? <laughs> exactly. Saying happy birthday. Yeah, that's um I'm trying I'm just blanking on there was a there was a Viennese doctor. He was a Hungarian working in Vienna in the like the 1840s. I'm just blanking on his name. It's embarrassing. And uh yeah, and he it, you know, that was one of the first uh epidemiology studies where yes. he was because like it, it was a different. There were two city-run hospitals for indigent women, um, uh, where you like county hospitals where you could go and get treated without pain much. And one was run by midwives, and one was run by physicians. And um, and the the women, the a lot of these were prostitutes. You know, they got pregnant, and they never wanted to go to the one run by physicians. They and and they always wanted to go to the run run by the midwives and this guy who's I wish I could remember um, figured out why it's because they, they had terrible outcomes in the doctor one run one yep. and and so he wondered why and he that the it was that the surgeons would come back would come out from dissecting cadavers and and then they would deliver the baby and so their hands would be covered in blood and they would basically yep. infect the the women who are delivering um and uh, meanwhile the, the midwives wash their hands and uh and so that's where he you know he drew the right conclusion there yeah and i think it took it took years for the medical community to accept this to actually admit that no no, no you need to wash your hands and that's what was causing uh, these terrible outcomes that's right and he was run out of vienna basically for this yeah had to go back to budapest uh and uh, <laughs> so yeah it took years to catch on i mean medical education then wasn't what it is now you know that's another thing that's changed hugely is i mean it it didn't take much to become a doctor back then uh Not so they anymore. didn't yeah yeah <laughs> now, these days it's, yeah 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 we have uh we have johns hopkins to thank for that they, they really changed medicine yeah 
So let's get back to, to GPCRs and to molecules. Um, what is what is your lab working on currently? So um, we have a big collaboration, a longstanding collaboration with, with Brian Roth's lab uh, that focuses on, did he say serotonin 2A was his favorite? GPCR, I, I honestly do not remember. That was episode yeah. 14. Well, anyway. We were recording 94. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah, 80 yeah. episodes ago. <laughs> okay, okay. Possibly. I don't, I don't, yeah. Possibly. It was, I think it was way up there anyway. So we're, we're, we've got a big, big project on that with Brian. We're, we're the small molecule discovery side of it. Um, and that's where we have a paper coming out in Nature in a week and a half. And um, and then we've got um, got a big project funded by DARPA for for new anal, non opioid analgesics, and so that's um, that's been a super exciting project because we get to use our technology and and optimize it, and it's um, it's allowed us to put together this uh, pipeline's too crude a word, but I I'll use it. Uh, where we can go from, you know, these really virtual chemical libraries, molecules that don't even exist yet, uh, and take them all the, through all the steps into animals. We've got this wonderful collaboration with uh, Alan Bassbaum here at UCSF, who's, you know, a, a, a pain, animal pain guy. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so we've been, you know, taking these molecules, um, optimizing them and then taking them into these uh, analgesia assays and with Alan's lab and that's super weak. so we have a paper coming out in science uh, on on some of those uh, so I think those are two of the excite that that ability you know when I started out way back when when dinosaurs ruled the earth um, the idea of take you know using the structure um, to discover new molecules and then take them into biology was like a dream. And, and I remember going to a conference where I, I had a, you know, well-known medicinal chemist sort of almost literally pat me on the head and say, you know, Ryan, very elegant stuff, but it's never going to affect what we do. And, and, and now these days to be able to go from, you know, conception all the way into proof of concept, yeah. you know, in an animal model where you can show that these molecules in the case of serotonin 2A are antidepressant without conferring hallucination or are um, very strong analgesics without, you know, reinforcing behavior or sedation. And you can really, this actually, the, the collaboration with, um, with Alan also involved a Bouvier lab and, you know, the, the, very, the, super elegant um you know pathways that they can dissect now and yeah. you can sort of see what your molecule is doing down into the cell and you know figure out which pathway you want to follow and then optimize for that and then take it into an animal and see oh my god you know it gets into the brain it's very potent analgesic and true to the signaling it it it's an analgesic but it's not a sedative it's an analgesic but it's not reinforcing, you know, those sort of things. Like that's a dream. I think that's, that's going full circle. You know, full I circle. think, and yeah. I think it's really going full circle coming out from, 
from a a model or a potentially molecule that doesn't exist physically that potentially can do something to actually having it synthesized, testing it on cells and then testing it in animals. I think it's just, that's the beauty of of the the work that everybody in the field is doing. It's really going full circle. So ambitious. Yeah, just trying to keep up is is amazing. And then, um, yeah, so so the ability to do that and the and people's willingness to you know to play along with us. Yep. So grateful. I'm humbled by it. The uh, really because <laughs> uh, if they knew how ignorant I was, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> uh, well, I, th- I then- think it, I think it goes both ways as well. I think I think everybody needs everybody on this, and it's really putting all these heads together that makes a beautiful picture out of it. So I think it goes both ways. Oh, oh I, I'm not I, knowing. For sure, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, and then, you know, you said, you asked, you know, what are, what are we excited about right now? And then this, this other thing, you know, these virtual libraries, they weren't always virtual, you know, for most of the history of, of my field, people have been docking molecules that actually exist and trying to pick among them for, you know, what'll be a good one. But what's happened in the last really four years is that people have bought into these virtual libraries and these are molecules that don't exist but that could readily be made and that we can get you know once we say oh we want that one uh we can get them in six weeks five weeks and that's um and and the thing is the number of molecules that fit into that category of not made but makeable and gettable in five weeks is at least 60 billion and you know, I think probably into the trillions. And it's sort of a bind-moggling space. And, and it, it's beautiful for what we do, but it's also like upended all of our technologies because it's just too many. And yeah. so one of our big, the things like technically we're, we're struggling with now is how do we get our, you know, our arms around trillions of molecules um, and I don't actually, I don't know. <laughs> that's what, that's gonna get my question. Do you know how to, how to get there? But even, you know, just having the ability to screen virtually these molecules that could be made in just a couple of weeks, I think is such an amazing advance because you didn't have to go through the, this whole process sequentially, making some number of molecules and having, going through the difficulties of that purifying them and then testing them. And then, you know, I think it just flips the entire process upside down and it allows to save time, money, and uh, hopefully make discoveries much faster. Oh, yeah. And we, we've completely bought into it. So I, and I think it does all of those things. Um, And what we found is as we've gone, you know, because our first foray into this, our, the libraries were like 138 million. And then we went up to half a billion and then a billion. And every time we went bigger and then we've done simulations that we can, we find that as the libraries grow, our results get better. And, and so we've just bought into this idea that, you know, more is better. It's sort of a Stalinist idea, but it seems like more is better. So let's, or an American idea. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. The yeah. bigger, the better. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but it seems like it's and it makes sense really, right? Just like you're to find the perfect molecule for your whatever the target is that you're, you know, passionate about. It's there's no 
necessarily likelihood that it's going to be. You'll never find it if it isn't in the library that you're screening. So the more chances you have, you give yourself to find it, the the more likely you are. As long as, and this is the killer, as long as your technology has the right signal to noise, because as you grow the libraries, the the chance of you know getting overwhelmed with decoy yeah. molecules with artifacts yeah. that also grows, and so that's that's a fight we're we're having right now but it's it's a it just feels like a super exciting time for for for, for us right now i think it is and I, I typically know the answer to this question and it's yes but do you think gpcrs are still good drug targets oh they're the best yeah. i think so too <laughs> yeah. great great drug targets um, you know for so many reasons like for for um small molecules you know they're they're really beautiful sites and then they're so important for for signaling and then they're they you can sort of pick this this idea of of bias signaling or fu functional selectivity not not just arrestin and g protein but among the g proteins and you know changing phosphorylation patterns i, I think it's just a super it's a great field it is it is now thinking about the tools and about the way you're you're looking at discovering GPCR ligands that have specific functions or desired potentially desired functions, what other key information, what other tools are we lacking in order to speed up drug discovery? That's a tough one. So um the so okay, I'll tell you. I, I, that it's a tough it has many answers um but i'll tell you one answer like for you know a lot of people uh working on gpcrs are working on um diseases of effectively the central nervous system and that can be psychosis depression uh, anxiety pain and um for um all of those diseases so I, the, the the let me back up. I'm going to say the simple answer to your question is the connection to the disease is the big problem. Uh, and so now going back to my little narrative, in in like almost all diseases of the CNS, maybe with the exception of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and de degenerative diseases, that there's 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 two huge problems for for developing a drug, you know, you talk about drug discovery, you're talking about developing a drugs. Um, the, the two problems are, the first is the placebo effect, right? So even for pain, you think, where there wouldn't be a, surely there's no placebo effect for pain, there is. right? But there, there is, is. There's a there is placebo. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the second problem is, is no biomarkers, right? So for, for most of the CNS diseases, like what's the biomarker for depression? Right, you have to you interview the patient. There's no biomarker for pain even, and so those are two huge problems. So the connection to disease, and then you 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 think about then you think about some of the simpler diseases, well, not simpler, but more more readily measured diseases like cardiovascular. Um, there, the problem is that you know there's already drugs available. And you have to beat standard of care, and you have to have these huge clinical trials. So the 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 you know figuring out the connection to disease and how you navigate 
the 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 part where you you know patients are involved that's the that's the part i think where the gpcrs now that's what makes gpcrs a difficult area for drug discovery i mean there's exceptions you know there's gpcrs involved in inflammation right actually those are the ones that are very hot right now um those are easier to move on but for a lot of gpcrs they're involved in these more that it's not that the molecules are difficult to find or optimize or you know get to what you know people my colleagues in pharma would consider a genuine lead you know a molecule yeah. you know with where the pkpd works out where there's proof of mechanism active in an animal that we can do you know in our academic labs pretty quickly actually and get good molecules you know potent pretty clean blah 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 but then advancing them from you know a lead to optimized lead to candidate then you run into a world of of difficulties because the clinic either the clinical trials are difficult or the um or the linkage of between the target and the disease yeah. is difficult to measure even though everybody believes it's true and things like that i think you make a great point and especially about you mentioned depression and how do you how do you measure do we have a biomarker for that what changes i'm pretty sure there are changes in the brain that happen but we don't know what they are and you know you mentioned interviews i mean there those are pretty easy tests pretty tests that are pretty easy to to evade you put on a smile yeah. and you you know what the interviewer is asking and you can just go go on your own and live in your head in a depressed state. Yeah. If you want to, and the, even if you're being candid, the very act of being interviewed and talking to a sympathetic person yeah. changes that, you know? So. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Last section of, of our chat. Uh, we've talked about the defining, defining moments in your, in your career that got you to where you are today. Any advice to junior scientists who want to contribute to the field, who are potentially currently depressed, who need a pick-me-up, uh, what would you tell them? Um, I think I would say follow your bliss, really. Like, don't overthink it too much. Follow, do something that, do things that in which you're genuinely excited about. Follow the cool science and, um, you know, good things will happen. The, uh, I, I think people worry. I mean, I look back on my own career and, and I, I laugh at myself for, for good reason, uh, just how innocent I was. And I think, you know, the students and postdocs I, I have, I'm lucky to have in my lab now are, are far more savvy than I was, but I, I I worry that they're almost like too savvy that they're you can you can plan things out too much and and you know uh, you know should I go into academia should I go into industry you know that it and I just I think that if people follow their passions in science we we live in a, a wonderful lucky time where broadly speaking there's support for science and there's pathways open to people and uh in industry and academia and and people say oh i feel like i need to be more applied you know to be successful or and that i don't think that's true at all that, that you know you can be very uh 
there's a lot of support for fundamental research and there's a lot of support for basic research and there's just a lot of support for you know discovering you know something cool and so i think my advice it sounds like i'm living <laughs> maybe i am in in this like fantasy world but i think following your bliss is really my best advice and i think thank you for that and i think it's also it's also true that nowadays there's much more information available out there people are way more concerned about okay i have a path this is my five year plan and every step has to happen and if it doesn't i don't know what to do i think there's the need to be a little bit more flexible and um do do what you like and things will will happen and if if you happen to to be depressed then something you might as well do something good with it and that's exactly what happened with with the podcast for me it oh, came yeah. out of it came out of a of an unfortunate situation and it i want to say it saved my life um mentally oh. speaking because i was in in a in a position in a place and covid had hit and i was in a position career wise where i wasn't happy and two and a half years later this is the best thing that happened to me yeah i think that's a great story thanks for sharing that and i think it's a story that people it'll help people because you know uh i've certainly been in dark points in my life i shared one of them and uh it's a i don't want to sound frivolous because people who are in a dark place it's it's not a, it's hard right it is but um but it's an opportunity too and for me you know science has been always a great savior partly because it's you know it's not just because the science is exciting science is exciting but it's also that you know i love being around scientists being around scientists and maybe that's what you know part of what you found in the podcast you know scientists they're kooky quirky people right but they're lovely people too and and they they're not i mean okay some of them are you know uh not super social <laughs> we all know examples of that but but actually most of the ones i know like even like the nobel laureates are they yeah. they like you know fundamentally they're nice people yeah no i agree agreed i i could not agree more and i think it's it's it is true for the gpcr field for sure and scientists we're all we're all different we're all weird and we all love science and i think that's what holds us together yeah all right mm -hmm. i want to let you go but before that we we've talked a little bit about again these determining moments in your life any aha moments that you had as a scientist you mentioned the structure that brian uh, kobilka walked you through you mentioned the conversation with brian roth um, yeah. Anything else? Yes. Um, I can share two. I don't know how much time we have. We uh, they have nothing I to do know. with GPCRs, but they've been important for drug discovery. They they have in my immodest immodest uh, moment, I'll say they've affected the field. So the first one was um, early on. I had started my lab at Northwestern, and we were looking for. Um, new inhibitors of beta-lactamase, which is primary resistance mechanism to, to penicillins and stuff. 
And uh, it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful enzyme to work with, very easy, but that's why we were working with it. And, and it's important. And um, and we found a lot of molecules and they um they all um they all turned out to be promiscuous, like they inhibited beta-lactamase, but then they inhibited chymotrypsin and they inhibited malate dehydrogenase, and they but by the time they got we got to beta-galactosidase, we knew we the game was shot. We'd somehow stumbled upon this weird class of molecules that inhibits everything, and we didn't know how. And um, and but at this around that time, I had learned that everybody else in the field was discovering these same molecules through wildly different ways. We got to them through docking, and um, and then and so, so we tried to we spent a year trying to figure out how they were working and all the time you know my my tenure clock was ticking and i thought well it'd, it'd be nice if we publish something and um and uh and so i myself was working on uh, there were two wonderful graduate students who were, especially susan mcgovern who did most of the work but i did i was doing some of the experiments myself with my own hands and um i had this um we we tried all these different mechanisms were they covalent were they um, denaturing, were they this, were they inter interfering spectrally with the assays? No, the answer was no, 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 no. Um, and so I did this experiment um, where I took the enzyme beta-lactamase up tenfold in concentration, which you could do with beta-lactamase because you, you use it at nanomolar concentrations. It was easy to take it up. And, um, and all of a sudden the inhibition went away for everything. That was really weird. And then I, I went out for dinner with one of my colleagues, Doug, Doug Fryman. He's a brilliant guy, still at Northwestern. And, um, and I was telling him about this over dinner. And he said, well, well, that's interesting. What happens if you take the enzyme up and then you take the inhibitors up? Do they come back? Does inhibition come back? And and so I went, so it's now 9 p.m. and I go back to the lab. <laughs> and of so course. I do this. <laughs> Yeah. And by at midnight, I had the answer. And, and, and of course, it did come back. And all of us, and it was like the ratio, the stoichiometry wasn't one to one or 10 to one, or it was like 10,000 to one. As long as you had 10,000 to one or 100,000 to one small molecule, you know, to protein stoichiometry, you were, you got in, inhibition. But if you lowered that stoichiometry, inhibition goes away. And it was, and so, Having spent a year like dead ending, we I thought, well, maybe the stoichiometry is that high, and maybe what's going on is that the molecules are they're not binding to the protein in any normal way. They're forming what I called my cells at the time, and uh, it's the my cells that are inhibiting the protein. It turned out that they weren't my cells; they were much bigger. They were colloids, but that was basically the right idea, and that was so. I had that. That was one aha moment, uh, and uh, that really changed everything for us understanding what was going on it turns out to be that what we later showed through a series of papers is the single largest uh, mechanism for artifact in in small molecule discovery wow it's i never uh, yeah it's like psychiatry i would have never guessed that that was important to this extent in yeah. order to, to see that inhibition we we wouldn't i wouldn't have either except that we'd exhausted everything <laughs> this was the last possible option <laughs> yeah 
So what was what was the other aha moments you mentioned too? Oh, okay. So that came very recently with um, uh, phospholipidosis. So we we had um, COVID nineteen. You mentioned COVID nineteen. So we had jumped on that, and uh, um, and we discovered working our big collaboration here at UCSF, still ongoing, wonderful collaboration with um, Kayvon Shokit's lab and Nevin Krogan's lab, and uh, some great labs uh, in at uh, uh, Institute Pasteur. Uh, Marco Venusi's lab. He's now in. He's now moved to Singapore, and um, Adolfo Garcia Sasser's lab in um, uh, Mount Sinai in New York City. Anyways, we we had, we've been looking for in molecules to inhibit COVID nineteen, and um, we found some. Actually, we found quite a lot. And um, Nevin's lab had suggested that there was this will this will resonate with the GPCR community. That there were um, there was a connection. Um, uh, uh, be, between a whole bunch of interesting integral membrane pro, uh, um, uh, proteins and, um, and 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 COVID proteins, and uh, so we we started mining. We knew what hit those targets, and we started mining them for um, for for known drugs for known drugs to them, and. Um, uh, prominent among them were the sigma one. This is where the GPCR guys will get into the sigma one and sigma two receptors. Not, of course, those are not GPCRs, but you know they they got their name because they were the sigma opioid receptor, right? Mm -hmm. And um, before the cloning, anyways. So we got lots of molecules. They were actually effective antivirally. You know, down to hundred nanomolar, so they look really great. And um, but over time, and we published a paper in Science about them no nature sorry the first paper was in nature it's it's a paper that's been cited like 1500 times since april since you know in two and a half years super exciting uh and um and but as we followed these molecules up you know in the next four or five months we realized that there was a huge disconnect between their sar their structure activity relationships yeah. like how potent they were on the sigma one or sigma two receptors and how potently, like there were some that were super potent on the receptors and had no antiviral activity at all. And then there were others which were actually quite good as antivirals, but pretty weak on the sigma one and sigma two. And um, and I was uh, I was talking to my sister, who's the real star in our family at the University of Toronto, and um, and she was saying, "Oh, you know what? We've had this funny experience with." These molecules for um, liver disease, which is a model, were a model for liver disease in in worm uh, that we're involved in a collaboration for, and and um, and actually, Brian, a lot of the molecules that we're finding are the same ones that you're finding for um, COVID nineteen. Because I've been bragging to her about our wonderful success, right? <laughs> and um, and I said. Oh, really? And she said, yeah, look, it's this one and that one and that one. Aren't those the same? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is liver, right, that you're studying. Well, what you guys have forgotten is that these molecules induce phospholipidosis primarily in the liver. And that's what's probably going on. Ha, 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 silly people. And then I thought, geez, I wonder if that's going on for us, too. And it turns out it was. And um, so it turns out all of our molecules we're inducing phospholipidosis 
and uh, and phospholipidosis, you know, as drug guys know all about it. It's it's uh, it's an important tox, um, and it turns out to dis disrupt lipid homeostasis enough that it disrupts most viruses, and um, and that and okay, so we discovered it. For, we sunk all our own boats first, but it turns out about I would say a, a strong a big majority of the molecules that had been published up to then through repurposing assays were inducing phospholipidosis as well. So um, that so we, we started collaborating with Marco's lab and uh, these guys at Novartis actually. And, uh, and, and we, and it turned out it was phospholipidosis. And we had this, I think we had a paper in, in science about it uh, last year that uh, Tia Tamino and, and a graduate student in the lab was the first author on. And it was, so I felt very, that was sort of like, and that was an aha moment that I, I feel. So most of my aha moments turn about turn out to be about how molecules that we think are really great aren't doing what we think they're doing. Uh, but it's still. But that's also very uh, important. It's super important. Yeah, those two things, you know, my joke in the lab is like, you know, I'm, we're supposed to be this great GPCR lab. We're supposed to be this great, you know, molecular docking lab. But about at least 50% of the time that I'm invited to give a talk, uh, at, in drug companies, they want to hear about irrigation or phospholipidosis. They don't care about this other stuff so much. <laughs> so. My goodness. Thank you so much, Brian. Last, really last question. If and when you have job openings in your uh, in your team, where can people find you? Um, they can find me on Twitter and they can direct me. We do have openings. We're, uh, we're, we have super exciting projects and we're, you know, desperately looking for talented people to fill them so they can find me on Twitter and they can just, you know, Google me. I'm easy to find. Just they can email me at UCSF um, and I'll be very happy to answer their emails. All right. There's a call call to action to all PhD students and postdocs out there. Phenomenal. Thank you so much, Brian, for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Yamina. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our guests, our ecosystem partners for their support, namely Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, and Montana Molecular. Thank you to our Dr. GPCR team as well, Attila Forrest, Ines Pinero, and our newest Dr. GPCR protégés, Montserrat Avila-Zozoya and Nipuna Wurasinga. Welcome to the team, Monse and Nipuna. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions and suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe, and we'll see you in the ecosystem. <music>